namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami Avijapachaya Sankara Sankara Pachaya Vinyanang Vinyana Pachaya Namarupang Namarupapachaya Salayatanang Salayatanapachaya Paso Pasambachaya Vedana Vedana Pachaya Tanha Tanha Pachaya Upadanang Upadana Pachaya Bhavo Bhava Pachaya Jati Jati Pachaya Jaramaranang Sokapari Devadu Kadomana Subhaya Sasambhavandi Evame Tatsakevaladsadukha Kandatsa Samudayo Hoti Avijayatoeva Ase Savira Kaniroda Sankara Nirodho Sankara Nirodha Vinyana Nirodho Vinyana Nirodha Namaru Panirodho Namaru Panirodha Salayatana Nirodho Salayatana Nirodha Pasanirodho Pasanirodha Vedana Nirodho Vedana Nirodha Tanna Nirodho Tanna Nirodha Upadana Nirodho Upadana Nirodha Bhavani Rodho, Bhavani Rodha, Jadini Rodho, Jadini Rodha, Jaramaranang Sokapari Devadu, Kadomana Subhayasa, Nirujandi Evame, Tatsakevalatsadukha, Kandatsani Rodhoti. The uh, theme for the Dhamma talk today is um, Transcendent Dependent Origination, which uh, is probably uh, sounds a bit daunting to most people. But uh, essentially this is a, uh, aims to be a very practical teaching and it refers to a, a particular sutta or a particular uh, approach that, that the, uh, the Buddha makes in um, one or two of his, his teachings. So the terms dependent origination might be quite familiar to uh, many people here, uh, old-time uh, uh, Buddhist practitioners. For other people, it might be completely uh, you uh, uh, have a new and novel term. 
but it, it's a uh, <coughs> a process that's described the the chanting I just did the second part. Uh, this is the um, like a, a twelve stage process that is described in various uh, parts of the, of the teachings, where the Buddha laid out essentially the relationship between ignorance, avicca, not seeing clearly, how that gives rise to craving, tanha, and how craving, a self-centered desire, uh, leads to suffering and uh, difficulty. And so that um, these, uh, the, the relationship of these three is what the dependent origination is describing. And so that, um, in, in essence, if you're familiar with the Four Noble Truths and the Buddha's description of the Four Truths, um, the uh, first truth is the existence of dissatisfaction, dukkha, the feeling of discontent, dis-ease, that sense of um, things not being uh, in order, things being out of balance, uh, discontent or, or um, uh, dis-ease of the heart. And then the second noble truth is that that, that experience of disease, uh, disorder, discontent, has a cause. It has a has a root. Uh, the uh, <coughs> the the root uh, that is described in that teaching is craving, tanha, of various different kinds. The third truth is the good news that it is uh, s- soluble. This particular kind of spiritual ailment uh, of dukkha. It can come to an end, dukkha niroda, the truth of the ending of dukkha. And then the, uh, the fourth truth is uh, the means, the, the, the means whereby that ending of dukkha is brought about. So the, um, uh, it's cast in the form of a medical diagnosis in the uh, sort of traditional Ayurvedic form, as they, people have described it. So you have the symptom, the cause, the prognosis, and the treatment is the basic sort of fourfold method that the Buddha used as a kind of medical model. Um, some people say that the medical model came after the Buddha. Some people say it came before, but you know, those are the things that people write PhDs about. So leave that aside for the moment. But uh, suffice to say, that's what this, this model is describing. So the dependent origination... The uh, the first part of it is in a way dis- that that uh, twelve stage process is describing how dukkha comes into being, how that feeling of dissatisfaction comes into being, and so in a way it's the fine anatomy of how you get from uh, truth uh, number two to truth number one, yeah, how it, how it's caused, and then the second part, the niroda section, is how uh, you get from uh, through truth number four to the finality of truth number three. So that, if you like, it's the, the, uh, the, the detailed exposition of the Four Noble Truths. It's like the, the, um, the kind of... Uh, uh, when you get a user's manual for a car or for a computer or something, then you get a, a, like a one-page synopsis at the front. Okay, these are the, the six things you absolutely need to know. And then the other 60 pages spells it out in detail what all those buttons are for and how you can change the settings on your various different dials. So Paticca Samupada, these, this 12-stage uh, process, is laying out that, that fine detail. It's the kind of subtle and um, intricate breakdown of how this whole uh, experience of dukkha arises. So, the, um, so uh, this uh, um, process, or this, uh, uh, say, uh, interdependent set of... of um, uh, say actions and reactions and uh, this kind of chain of 
this causal chain of, of uh, events and processes. Uh, the Buddha described it in various different ways, and, um, and it's kind of you come across different parts of it in different teachings. But often it's represented and it's talked about as the wheel of becoming, the bhava chakra. Bhava means becoming, chakra is a wheel. The bhava chakra, the wheel of becoming, or the wheel of birth and death. And it's described uh, very often and depicted. Uh, many of you will have seen this within in different Buddhist monasteries or temples, uh, different uh, textbooks and different paintings. You see uh, a kind of uh, a demonic figure, Mahakala, or uh, King Yama, holding up uh, you know, this, this round shape. It's depicted as a, as a wheel, and the wheel has got the, these uh, different images around the edge, and uh, they represent the, these 12 links of dependent origination. And it's a wheel, or the wheel is used as a, as a symbol because uh, what's, what's pointed out in the teachings is that um, <clears throat> if we are ignorant, if we don't see things clearly, then just sort of give you the, the simple version, if we don't see things clearly, then that sets the mind up to um, uh, view experience in terms of me, the subject, and then the, the, the world as the object. Me in here, the world out there. And the, the more there is ignorance, and, and in the Buddhist sense, ignorance doesn't mean not having information. It means not seeing clearly, not seeing things in accordance with reality. So it's not, ignorance in the Buddhist terminology is not an absence of information. You can have a lot of information and still be very ignorant. <laughs> uh, it's to do with, with not being awake, not being, a, a, not being wise, or not being attuned to reality. So the uh, <clears throat> the... The causal process then is described as a wheel because um, the mind sets up a subject-object duality, me and here, the world out there. And then the more ignorance there is, the more we believe what our thoughts say. The more we believe, oh, that's beautiful, that's ugly, that's, uh, I'm, I'm right, you're wrong, this is true, that's false. Uh, the, the mind creates a judgment about what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch and think. And it, and, it, and it makes it real. The more ignorance there is, the more real it seems, the more solid and dependable. And I say, that carpet is blue. It's blue. If you're co totally colorblind, the word blue has no meaning. If you're blind, the word blue, now, if you've been blind from birth, the word blue has no meaning. But I can say, yeah, it's a blue carpet. But that's assuming that that, that sound, blue, <laughs> is meaningful to, to all beings that hear it. So what is, this is pointing to is uh, the more that there is ignorance, the more we will, we will completely and fully believe perceptions of the mind and uh, uh, the judgments of our thoughts, our opinions, uh, our loves, hates, our fears, our hopes, and so forth. So, then, uh, that, so that's what conditions or, or feeds the, the habits of craving. So tanha, or a craving, is where the mind has got lost or begins to get lost in its likes and dislikes. And so that then uh, it attaches to, I want, I'm feeling hungry, I've got to have some food. Or I'm feeling uncomfortable, I've got to move. Uh, I'm, uh, <clears throat> I'm listening to this Dhamma talk, I've got to make sure it's recorded. That, um, that kind of clenching of the heart that says I've got to have I must have or this is awful that's bad so it's the where the mind latches onto an object and <clears throat> and identifies with it so then having uh, the mind having grasped having taken hold of a, of a hope or a fear or a desire an aversion then it gets lost in it so that that the the in a way the middle section of that that 12-step process 
from craving through to uh, to birth is where the mind absorbs more and more deeply into a, 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 an object of desire, a fear, an aversion, an opinion. And then uh, birth is where there, there's a, a point of, uh, of no return, where you've, you've desired something and then you decide you're going to follow it, you've, you've gone after it and you've actually paid the money. And Okay, now it's yours. <laughs> then birth is, okay, now I bought this thing, now I've got to look after it. Damn. That uh, I just wanted the experience of owning this beautiful car. Now I've got to look after it. Now I've got to worry where I park it. Now I've got to uh, to to be at e- uh, I've got to be at ease in myself rather than worrying whether someone's going to scratch it with a key and or someone's going to steal it. Oh, I didn't realize all this stuff was going to come with me owning this beautiful new car. So birth is the moment of commitment and no turning back, and then living the, and then the. Uh, the last part of the cycle is then living through the results of having made that commitment, that, that feeling of ownership, having followed that desire, having followed that aversion, that sort of angry impulse or that fearful impulse, that impulse based on craving. So the reason why it's called a cycle, uh, and uh, I, I often reassure people I can't re- read anybody's mind, but this is how we function as human beings, is that when we get into that that experience of, oh dear, I bought this thing and... Uh, and uh, it was going to be so good and so important, but now it's really disappointing. Or I got into this new relationship and now, yeah, I joined this new monastery and uh, it's going to be so great to be a monk, but God, it's really ordinary. <laughs> so then, I was like, well, the other talks Ajahn Amaro gave were really great. This is kind of, yeah. How can I get up and leave without kind of everybody noticing? And I'm not trying to intimidate anybody. So. <laughs> but uh, so that... Uh, What's in the in the description of the uh, the dependent origination cycle? Sokapari deva dukkha dominasa upayasa, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. That's the what well, you can call the ego death, or the the feeling in the heart of oh, that didn't work. Really, I'm really I'm really embarrassed. I'm really I'm sorry about this. I feel really awful. And it didn't you know I've I've kind of satiated myself. I got what I wanted, but yeah, it's not enough. Or it really didn't satisfy me. Or, or uh, I still feel insecure, kind of uh, feeling uh, lonely, feeling incomplete, feeling restless. So that sets us up for another lap of the of the cycle because usually it's not a particularly conscious state. My experience is you don't sort of sit down and think, ah, I'm feeling lonely and wretched. You know, I'm feeling incomplete and my mind is restlessly seeking something to, to make me feel good again. It doesn't spell it out in detail. It's more just like a kind of semi-conscious feeling, and the next thing you know, you're you're um, there at the fridge, <laughs> or you're <coughs> you're down at the you're, you're looking at the, adver- the the car adverts, or you're in the jewelry shop, or you're you know, house hunting, or job hunting, or monastery hunting, or ajahn hunting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Going, I've I've never looked at Tinder or um, as dating sites, but. Uh, I would guess that that is a frequent place where one goes to get away from that feeling, to uh, like finding another partner. Oh look! Oh look! Oh look! Oh look! Ooh, look. Yeah. Or whichever way you, whichever way is the way you swipe to get the next one that you're looking for. So, the that's what happens is we find ourselves restlessly uh, trying to get back to that last place that we felt good. And what happens is that the uh, when you, uh, when we look at this this process. 
Uh, and this is something I've you know, explored a lot, and particularly Lumpur Sumato's teachings on this have been incredibly helpful over many, many years for many people. What he would often point out is that the, 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 the stage of this whole process that is most compelling is what we call becoming. So that you've decided, I must have uh, another piece of cake. Yeah. Yesterday was my birthday, so there was more than enough cake to last for the rest of the year. But <laughs> so take cake as a, as a convenient object. So I've got to have some more cake. Uh, I really need some more cake. After all, you know, it's Ajahn Amro's birthday, and I want to celebrate that. It would be rude to him if I didn't have more cake. Yes, that's a good reason. <laughs> so the mind takes hold of an object, it gets absorbed in it, so there's the, cra- there's the, the, the feeling of hunger, or, and then there's the craving, I must have, and then grasping, I've got to have, and then becoming is yes, where you've, you've got the cake and you take a mouthful, you yes. So that yes moment is the Baba experience. That's the, you're gratifying uh, the, the, the chosen desire. And in that moment, the universe has shrunk to that thing, right? Again, I'm not reading anybody's mind, but uh, it, the universe, has, everything else has disappeared. There's just the cake or the partner or the, 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 uh, the, the hit, having vented your spleen, having told that person in your office what you really think of them. Yes! So that moment of, of maximum thrill is, is what we call becoming. So that's the last time that life was very simple and everything was good. And so again, it's not a particularly conscious process, but that's in that moment, in, in terms of neurobiology, you'd call that the maximum endorphin flush. There's the uh, dopamine, the maximum amount of dopamine is landing in this appropriate place in the brain, and there's this kind of maximum pleasure feeling of yes. And it's interesting when they, they've wired up people to measure these things that actually the moment of, of most extreme gratification is when you're guaranteed to get what you want and you haven't quite got it yet. So when you're going shopping, they've kind of wired people up with galvanic skin responders and such. Like send them shopping. And it's the moment where you've chosen the thing that you want and the, and the person behind the counter is about to give it to you. And when you receive it, it's already a disappointment. So uh, it's like, uh, I often quote Winnie the Pooh in this. He said, um, when uh, I think uh, Christopher Robin asked him, what's the most wonderful thing in the world? What's the, what's the nicest thing in the world? And Pooh says, honey. And then he said, well, actually, no, it's not honey. It's when you know you're going to have some honey, but you haven't quite got it yet. You've got the honey pot in your hand, and you know you're going to have some honey. That's the best moment. So A.A. Milne had a, an insight into Bawa, I suspect. So what happens, why it's a cycle, is we're feeling lonely, incomplete, uh, kind of agitated. We want something we don't even know what we want. And then there we are, you know, uh, flipping through websites, uh, looking at, uh, into the fridge, um, going out for a drive for something. And we go uh, to the place where we last felt good. Uh, it's not a rational process, but we go to, to uh, say, gratify that feeling in the same place where we felt gratification last time. So it's called. It's a, in a way, it's a it's a cycle of addiction. We keep going to the places that, that gratified us last time. We keep going back there and back there and back there, and so it's a, a cycle of compulsive behaviors. So the, the Buddha spoke about how to break this cycle in, in many many different ways, uh, and one of the the most helpful teachings is this um, what is called transcendent dependent origination. So. Uh, the, <coughs> 
there's a very interesting little passage in uh, the uh, Anguttara Nikaya, in the, in the numerical discourses, where uh, it's in the... I looked this up just pre to prepare for this talk, so don't be impressed. But it's, in the, it's Sutta number 63 in the Book of the Sixes. And in that, the Buddha says, uh, Dukkha ripens in two different ways. The, the experience of suffering ripens in two different ways, either as confusion, like more dukkha, or it ripens in search. And in, by search, he, he, said, he characterizes that by saying, there must be one or two, there must be a, a word, there must be two words for a way to describe the, the, the means of getting out of this dukkha. There must be a way out of this. There has to be a, an alternative to this. So that is a, a key insight. Uh, there, and to just uh, to recognize, yeah, dukkha ripens in two ways. One is more dukkha, or the other is there's got to be an alternative. Like if we're addicted to shopping, or we're addicted to uh, to cigarettes, or or sugar, or alcohol, or or uh, affirmation, you know, book publishing, or something, whatever it might be that our our addiction of choice, or getting um, approval from your peers in the hospital, or the university, or your family, or wherever even having to impress people with how good your parking is. You know, I've known people who are obsessed with it. They kind of park their car and they have to kind of, oh, it's not quite straight. You know, what will they What will they think? And they have to go out and park again so they're absolutely parallel to the to the pavement with exactly the right distance between the car in front and the car behind. Yes! They, they will be so impressed with how good a parker I am. So whatever our particular obsession might be, then to free the heart from that kind of obsession, then either we, we see um, we, uh, that there's got to be an alternative or we just carry on repeating the same problems, the same obsessions over and over again. And in that, that image, uh, what's called the Baba Chakra, you have uh, Mahakala, the, the, uh, called the, the god of time. Maha means great, Kala is time. So you have Mahakala. So it's depicted as holding up a wheel, but also... Um, uh, it's not just a wheel, it's also a mirror. So part of the symbolism of that, that image is it's a mirror in which you're looking at yourself. You're looking at, at what you are and the, the, the patterns that make up us as human beings. So in a sense, it's stepping back uh, and looking and recognizing, oh, that, that's me in the mirror. That's me with greed, hatred, and delusion at the center and the, uh, and the 12 links of uh, dependent origination you know, around the outside and the, the six realms of existence, you know. The, the human realm, the heaven realm, the animal realm, the, the ghost realm, the, the uh, asura realm, the, the jealous gods and the, the animals and the hell realms. That's a, that's a mirror. I'm looking at my mind. So that same gesture of there's got to be a way out of this is like stepping back and recognizing that's me. That's my life in that mirror. Huh. Well, that's shocking. <laughs> The, uh, but in seeing that, oh, that's 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 me. That's that's my image. That's how I'm configured. Then, uh, <clears throat> in that moment, uh, in a, that's where the arising of faith. There's a faith that there's got to be an alternative. Like if you're addicted to, to approval or alcohol or tobacco or whatever, that something in the heart knows. I really don't have to be this way. Other people are not addicted to the same things. Other people don't depend on this. There are enlightened beings who are not uh, obsessed with the same things that I am. There's got to be a way to free this heart. So that's faith, what we would call sadha, that sense of intuitive wisdom, that confidence that there has to be an alternative. 
So in the, the, the teaching on dependent origination, where, which is called the transcendent teaching, again, don't be impressed because I looked this up, but this is in the uh, Sangyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses. Uh, the, it's the connected discourses about causality. So it's the 12th section and uh, Sutta number 23. So this is, is uh, uh, often called the Sutta on proximate cause or immediate cause. And the Buddha goes through the, the, the list of the, the factors of dependent origination. So we have uh, avijja, ignorance, the first, and then uh, sankhara, volitional formations, uh, is the second. And consciousness, vijnana, vijnana, conditioning, body and mind, materiality, mentality, nama rupa. Nama rupa, conditioning, the six senses, the six senses, conditioning, uh, sense contact, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Sense contact conditioning feeling, Vedana, liking, the feeling of liking, the feeling of disliking, the neutral feeling. And then feeling conditioning craving, Tanha, as I was mentioning, and Tanha conditioning clinging, uh, Upadana. Clinging conditioning becoming, Bhava, Bhava conditioning birth, and then birth conditioning uh, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. But then, uh, when you get to the, um, in that particular expression, in the Sutta on Proximate Cause, then the, the Buddha says you know, and, um, that, the, uh, that uh, rather than the, the experience of dukkha, then giving rise to more dukkha, it gives rise to faith. So this is a, and it's a kind of a unique teaching. When he, uh, and he, uh, uh, he actually starts it going through from uh, the mind of liberation the liberated mind and sort of goes through the whole process sort of uh, in reverse order what he said is when he says when he gets to the the factor of faith he says and what's the cause of faith what's the proximate cause of faith he says dukkha suffering dissatisfaction is the is the source of faith because that faith is that there's got to be a way out of this i i i, I can feel the sense of, of addiction of compulsion of, of habituation there has to be an alternative so when the heart sees that alternative, then there's a quality of gladness, or what's called pamoja in Pali. Pamoja, it's like, because in a sense the heart intuits that and says, yeah, there has to be a way. You don't know what the way is, you haven't accomplished it, but the heart knows there is a way out. So that's called pamoja, and then pamoja leads to piti or rapture, which is a, a kind of a more comprehensive kind of enthusiasm or gladness or sort of delight and then that uh, uh, that pity that uh, quality of, of rapture or joy a kind of joyfulness like yeah there's definitely a, an alternative I can see people around me who've also broken free of these habits now uh, that uh, that is definitely a possibility for me so then pity that rapture then conditions uh, sukha or contentment uh, an ease of uh, a relaxation of body of mind uh, an ease or a contentment of being and that uh, quality of of sukha of contentment happiness then that uh, is the condition for the arising of concentration because if you are content and <coughs> you're at ease like if you're really happy being at amravati you're really enjoying listening to this dhamma talk you're not thinking about what you got to where else you could be like oh this is a real waste of a sunday afternoon you know, i could be <laughs> Somewhere else, watching the football or doing something else. So, but if you're if you're content, if you're if you're happy where you are, the mind is not restless, thinking about other places where it could be or should be. It's fully uh, open to being where it is. So, when the heart is, when the body and the mind are relaxed and content, 
then that's a, a direct cause for samadhi. When the mind is, is uh, concentrated, is focused on the present, then it naturally is more able to uh, observe how nature works, how the mind works, how experience works. And so it, uh, it is the proximate cause, it's the immediate cause for insight, or we'd say knowledge and vision of the way things are, the yathabhutan yanadasanam. When that insight, uh, that so true, clear seeing arises, the mind is awake to the present, awake to the way that experience works, then there's a, a letting go. There's a, a, a sense of coolness in the heart, a dispassion, uh, a, uh, a, a detachment, a, a nibida, a kind of cooling of the heart, <coughs> and uh, a, a dispassion. And then that leads to to liberation, to vimuti, to freedom, and which then leads on to the uh, the ending of the outflows, the asavakaya, or the, the complete uh, liberation of the heart, the complete uh, experience of complete enlightenment. So this is a very uh, very different, uh, um, say, route than going around and around the the, the cycle of addiction, um, but it all hinges on the skillful use of suffering. And so also in the forest tradition, this is often called the suffering which leads to the end of suffering. But that is like putting your dukkha to work. When you're feeling grief, you're feeling disappointment, you're feeling lonely, you're feeling incomplete, then rather than buying into that, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not loved enough, or if only I'd done better with my life, if only I had made such bad choices, yeah, if only people were, were kinder to me, if only I had more money, if only I lived somewhere else, you know, if only, if only, if only rather than, than just compounding that experience of dukkha by identifying with it and, uh, say, grasping it, there is, the, in a sense, taking the painfulness of that experience and using it to wake up and, and to, in a sense, arouse that quality of, of faith. So there's uh, that uh, skillful use of dukkha, in a way, is the, the, the main theme and the, I think the most useful a thing to consider for the, this afternoon's uh, uh, the area of, of reflection. So I, I've, I realize I've used a lot of technical terms and been through a few lists here, and so I hope I'm not losing too many people. But I'm assuming there's a certain degree of knowledge and, uh, and acquaintance with these teachings already. If, um, <clears throat> if you do want to have more uh, of the the wording and the information and the, the pattern of things to hand. This is, I would say, is the very best book on dependent origination that exists in English. It's called Dependent Origination, predictably. The Buddhist Law of Conditionality. And the author is um, a very highly revered uh, monk in Thailand, uh, Venerable Payuto, P-A-Payuto, P-A-Y-U-T-T-O. So we got numerous copies of this in the library, and it's also free online from GeoCities. So I highly recommend this. He explains it extremely helpfully. And the section about um, transcendent dependent rising is in the last chapter called Breaking the Cycle. And you'll find those on between pages 93 to 97. And he has little nifty diagrams as well. So, um. <clears throat> now this... Um, the sense of, of uh, the natural relationship between these factors is a very uh, useful thing to consider, along with this teaching, uh, which is, as I said, Sutta number 23 in uh, the 
Nidana Vaga, the, the connected discourses about uh, causality. Uh, there's another teaching that's in the Anguttara Nikaya, the, the numerical discourses in the Book of the Tens. Again, don't be impressed because I did look this up. <laughs> and um, this is uh, uh, it's known as the, uh, the teaching of the, about liberation being a natural process. And this is where the Buddha talks about um, uh, virtue and sila being um, you know, the foundation of, of spiritual life. And also how these, these, uh, these different uh, aspects of our being uh, relate to each other in, in a natural and direct way. So he says, um, for one who is, who is uh, say, uh, respectful of the precepts, one who lives according to, to the moral precepts, there's no need for them to think, may I, be, may I experience gladness, may I experience um, uh, pamoja, because it's natural if one keeps the precepts uh, and lives in a moral way, the heart is free from remorse, uh, avipatisara, the heart is free from remorse, free from regret, and gladness naturally arises. And he said, for one whose heart is glad, there is no need for them to, uh, to think, may joy arise in me, because for one who has experienced gladness, then joy naturally arises. The one who experiences joy, there's no need for them to think, um, may I ex experience a calmness, or that, that kind of uh, settling of body and mind, the the what's called um, pasadi or, or that sense of, of tranquility, because when the, the heart is is uh, is joyful, then it's natural for the body and mind to be relaxed and for there to be uh, that sense of of calmness. And then when there's calmness, then naturally contentment arises. And contentment then concentration arises. For one who is concentrated, there's no need for them to think. May knowledge and vision of the way things are arise, because one whose heart is is focused is concentrated then it's natural for insight into the way things are to arise. For one who sees the way things are, then there's a need for them to think, may a dispassion and detachment arise because it's natural. For one who sees the way things are, for the heart to be dispassionate and detached. And for one whose heart is dispassionate and detached, there's no need for them to think, may I experience liberation because it's natural for one who's experiencing detachment and dispassion for liberation to arise and so on. So... Um, if and I say this and I quote that because, particularly because you might be thinking, how am I going to remember all that? There's so much stuff. But it is a, a natural. Uh, this is a, a natural process, just as the cycles of addiction are a natural process. <laughs> the the process of liberation is also natural you know, if we steer it in the right direction. So as I was saying, that the uh, within that first description, the key is the the skillful use of dukkha and many many times people come particularly when they've had um, relatives die their parents die or their, their spouse or their children or siblings and they're experiencing a lot of grief and so this is a theme that i bring up over and over again is to you, know, you, you buddhist practice is not about switching off the grief it's not about becoming numb or not feeling anything it's not about becoming insensitive but rather it's it's like taking the, the, the pain that we feel and making it work for us, making it that those kinds of a sense of loss or sadness, a sense of grief, the sense of losing a relative or losing an opportunity. You know, that you, you feel that, oh, if only I'd made a different choice when I was 20 or 30 or 40. <laughs> if, only, if only, then I would. So the grief doesn't have to be for a dead person. It can be for a, you know, a, a, a dead qualification <laughs> or a, a choice that was poorly made. So that we can take the pain and make it work for us. That, that pain can be something that helps us to, to wake up.
And uh, so then uh, if we are wise, then we bring attention to that and say, oh, this is the experience of not having got what I wanted. That this is this is dukkha. Now, uh, I'm feeling this because I have the idea, oh, if only I had had, if I'd passed that exam, if only I'd chosen to, to take that job, if only I'd chosen to, to go and be with that teacher, then, then, because my mind is attached to that memory or that idea, then now I experience this sense of loss or absence. Because that person was my child or my parent, I now feel this experience of loss. That's the cause, this is the effect. Aha! Nothing is wrong, nothing is out of order. Because that dukkha, the, the dukkha which is the, 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 um, uh, the dukkha that's spoken about in the Four Noble Truths, that dukkha is not dukkha of having a headache or a, or a broken leg. That dukkha is that it shouldn't be this way. The world is out of order. You know, this is, something's gone wrong. This is unfair. And, and so that's the dukkha that can be solved by wisdom. The dukkha of a pain in your, in your leg or, or a headache you know, can't be solved by... Um, by spiritual training, the Buddha himself had chronic back pain. Yeah, the, if you, if you look at the uh, Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the, dis, the discourse about the Buddha's last days, and he says, um, "Yeah, I'm 80 years old. I've lived for 80 years. My body is like an old cart held together with strings and straps, and uh, <coughs> the uh, uh, the only way I can experience comfort is to completely absorb my mind into emptiness." So if the Buddha was paying attention to, to uh, the sense world in the ordinary way, he was in constant pain. And he was a Buddha. So he, didn't, he, knew, he was in constant pain, but he knew how not to make a problem out of it. So those of you who are thinking, well, I came to Buddhism to, to never feel pain again. Try a different place. <laughs> because uh, that's not what the, the, I would say that the Buddha Dhamma is, is teaching. It's not about a, of never having any discomfort but it's a matter of establishing the skillful attitude towards it. So if we, um, say, change the way that, that dukkha, that kind of painful feeling, is, is regarded, then it really can work for us and then become a cause for these, for, for these qualities of, of mental and physical ease, the, the ability of the mind to, to focus, to concentrate, and then the arising of wisdom. Now, that they, uh, in reflecting on the, these dependent origination teachings um, and in that, that cycle, there's so that, that uh, dukkha at the end, of, you know, sort of stage 12, uh, that is one exit, exit point from the cycle. But the cycle can be broken or can be escaped from uh, at other stages as well. And uh, particularly in the, in the um, meditation traditions of, uh, in, in the southern Buddhist world at least, when, when they, the different teachers are, are giving instruction about this, they very, very often talk about the link between feeling and craving, vedana, pachaya, tanha, feeling, conditioning, craving, as uh, a, a key point to bring the attention uh, in meditation. So the, using dukkha as the object, that's kind of like you've already bought the object, you, you know, you've already bought into it, you're it's kind of waking up surrounded by broken glass with bare feet in the middle of the road, like, how did I get here? I don't know, but I'm going to have to walk carefully to get out of this. You know, you're, you're already in the middle of the mess. So um, that's that, uh, that kind of um, approach. But we can, uh, if we have developed wisdom, mindfulness, uh, then we can break the cycle earlier on. 
So if we pay attention, we can notice that, uh, as I was saying, that the feeling of, of uh, dislike or the feeling of liking um, is just a feeling on its own. And that the, the, the ending of suffering that was talked about in the Four Noble Truths is not the ending of feeling. It's not about being totally insensitive. It's not about shutting our nervous system down and becoming numb. Not at all. But rather, it's, uh, uh, in a way, learning to recognize the difference between feeling and craving, yeah? between liking and wanting, or between disliking and hating. So the, uh, a, a story that uh, Lumpur Sumedha would often tell um, when he was a young monk at uh, Wat Bapong, Ajahn Chah's monastery, he first went there in 1967, and uh, he was the only um, foreign monk in the whole province you know, there was there was some uh, american uh, air force and military people at the big air base in ubon <laughs> uh, you know, ubon province is the province of thailand closest to laos and cambodia so it's a it's quite a remote um, very very poor region of the country so having a white monk there was a bit like having a white alligator you know it's this kind of strange thing that you would go and look at Ooh, have you heard have you heard there's a white monk and and so sometimes people would come to, to visit Wat Bapong, Ajahn Chah's monastery, just in the hope of seeing the white monk. Like, this kind of thing that was talked to, a strange thing, and he's huge. You know, he's he's yeah, more than six feet tall. He's you know, this huge white monk, like a giant white alligator. This kind of object of curiosity. So uh, Ajahn Chah was quite protective of him and, and didn't sort of wheel him out as an object for people to kind of ex, you know, examine and ooh and ah over. But um, if he thought it was useful, sometimes he would invite uh, the, the young uh, Bhikkhu Sumato to come and, and to meet people, or people could come and talk to him and ask him questions. Because it was also a cause of incredible faith. You know, Ubon, it's the kind of, if you, really, if you really blew it in law school, and you, 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 know, you came bottom of the class, you'd still be able to get a job in Ubon. If you were last in your, in your batch at medical school, and you just, just scraped a pass, Ubon is where you'd end up. If there's any Ubon people, I'm not maligning it. It's my, it's my province too. So I think uh, Ubon is this way. It's the kind of bottom of the heap, like the Bihar of Thailand. It's the bottom of the heap. And so having this American, an American with a master's degree, um, leaving his comfortable life in the West and coming to live in Ubon, you know, people are amazing. And then Ajahn Chah's monastery was known as being so tough, they used to say that uh, three months at Wat Bapong was like 10 years in any other monastery. Because Ajahn Chah ran a very, very, very tight ship. It was a very uh, austere living situation. So it, it was a great cause for faith uh, in people that uh, this, this large American would come and train with uh, Lumpur Chah. So one day, this, uh, there's a nursing college in, in Ubon. And every year, the, um, the, the teachers uh, at the nursing college would bring the, nursing, the, the student nurses out to meet uh, Lumpur Chah to pay respects and to receive teachings. And so uh, on one of these occasions, then, he invited the young Sumato uh, Bhikkhu to come and sit with him. And so the, uh, you know, the way it is, just like these good monks sitting here, kind of sit politely, Ajahn makes all the noise and you know, is the center of attention and then the junior monastics sort of sit there politely and keep quiet. They don't kind of chime in and say, well actually Ajahn, I've got something to say here. They might do. If you're well behaved they don't. So anyway, so he's just sitting there and um, but he's surrounded by, you know, 60 or 70 uh, 
you know, teenage nurses and nursing students in their smart uniforms and their, their, their teachers all gathered around, you know, sitting you know, politely with their hands in Anjali. But uh, as I said, Wat Bapong was an extremely austere place. And so that in, in normal circumstances, you know, none of the monks or novices would be, you know, within uh, 25 yards of, of a woman, uh, so, you know, an arms round when you're receiving food. Otherwise, you know, women folk are kept very, very much at a, a distance. And, uh, and but, you know, they were sitting all, you know, right up close, uh, uh, listening to Ajahn Chah's teachings under his, his kuti. And so uh, there, you know, so there, there they were sitting together for a couple of hours, you know, the, the um, young Sumedho Bhikkhu, with, uh, surrounded by these uh, f- you know, 60 or 70, 80 uh, teenage nurses. So, uh, and in Northeast Thailand, they're very, very straightforward in matters of food, sex, and death, uh, very, very ordinary subjects of conversation. Uh, again, I'm sure that any Thai people won't kind of contest that. But this, particularly in the Isan, they're ex- kind of, for someone who's grown up in southern England, extremely straightforward uh, about, uh, you know, things that, that, you know, people don't, you know, polite people don't talk about in, <coughs> in the Western society, usually. So anyway, the Ajahn Chah just sort of said, after the, the group had paid their respects and gone, he just turned to uh, the young Sumato book and said, so Sumato, what did that do to your mind? Yeah. <laughs> you know, to say, there you are, you know, you've got uh, uh, dozens of teenage girls sitting in front of you for a couple of hours, you know, what's the effect? And then the response that he made was, he said, in, in the Thai language, he said, chop, there my ao, which means, I like but I don't want. <clears throat> so Ajahn Chah was extremely impressed with that response. Oh, very good, very good. Because he wasn't trying to um, pretend that he said, oh, was there? Why, why do you ask? Oh, was there women there? Oh, I, I didn't notice. <laughs> you know, that, uh, that would have not been true to the fact. Or, and he also saw that he wasn't kind of just you know, holding himself down to the floor, trying to you know, control his wild passions. But he saw, yeah, there's attraction. Like if you're hungry, you know, food is interesting. If you're a, you know, you're a 33-year-old male and you're heterosexual, and so then having several dozen young women close by when you've been no closer than about 25 or 50 yards you know, all day, every day, for months and months, years, it's going to have an effect. It's just chemistry. That's just the way hormones and the, the sense world works. So uh, he acknowledged, yeah, there's an effect, but I'm not interested in following it. So apparently uh, for the next two or three weeks, every Dhamma talk that Ajahn Chah gave was sort of around that chop, down my owl theme. You know, I like, but I don't want. So this is talking about this, this bridge that we can cross or not cross between uh, feeling and craving. So it can be similarly, you know, I dislike, but I don't have to hate. Like, you can have a, a, a headache. Uh, you can have a, a difficult partner, in, uh, a difficult family member. You can not like them, but you don't have to hate them. You can have a pain, like a, a headache for three days. You, don't ha- you can not like it, but you don't have to hate it. So this is really important because oftentimes we consider that loving kindness, metta, means trying to like everything. But having a three-day headache is not likable. You know, if you've got a really inconvenient illness, you have to inject yourself with with, um, insulin every day or several times a day. It's really inconvenient. Uh, If you have a 
uh, a family member that you're, you've got to look after or is very close to you but is really hard work, you, 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 might, you, you might find it very difficult, you might not find it a likable situation, but you don't have to hate it. And so that loving kindness is not trying to make ourselves like things, but being open to the way things are. So when we can be mindful of this bridge between feeling and craving, and we can recognize there's liking, but I don't have to want it. There's disliking, I don't have to hate it. <sighs> there's a spaciousness there. There's a, a kind of ease within the heart. And so that we're not suppressing those feelings. We're not, you know, because oftentimes, uh, you know, if a Buddhist, a, a, you know, a Buddhist practitioner, someone is, you know, late ones labeling oneself a Buddhist, or you sort of dress like this, you know, you're telling the world you're a Buddhist, and then you say, oh, you know, that's really delicious, or oh, how beautiful, what a beautiful day. You say, you're a Buddhist. You're not supposed to like things. You know, <laughs> I'm sure a few of you had that kind of reaction at work, like, like. Uh, um, you, know, you, you say that, you're you know, fed up with a particular boss. You say, well, you can't be fed up, you're a Buddhist. So I say that's a wrong understanding of what, what Buddhism is. We still are feeling like the Buddha has still had feelings of liking and disliking, comfort and discomfort. But the, the attitude towards it is, uh, is the thing that makes a difference. So when we are able to, uh, say, bring the attention to, to that realm of feeling and inhabit that, then... We still feel the world completely, you know, liking, disliking, neutral feeling. Um, uh, but, but the heart is not inhibited or limited by that. And there's another um, helpful little collection of teachings. This is a, a kind of major Pali excursion today. So um, there's another, uh, another teaching of a kind of successive qualities where the Buddha talks about the skillful relationship between attention, perception, feeling and, and liberation and uh, this is again in the book of the tens in the Anguttara Nikaya this is uh, sutta number 58 again don't be impressed because I looked it up um, and uh, it, uh, it starts off by saying uh, it's talking about the nature of all things and when the, when the Buddha is saying if people ask you about the nature of things this is what to, this is how to talk about the the, uh, the world of things so all things um, are rooted in interest, chandamula. So that all things are rooted in interest. They are born of attention. So if you're interested, you, know, you, you make something, you give it life or solidity by, by being interested and then paying attention. You give attention to it, you make it something solid. You give it meaning, you give it value by, by attention. So rooted in, in interest, um, born of attention, arising from contact, so that then you, you put your attention onto it, you, you absorb into that seeing or hearing or tasting, feeling, thinking, remembering. So rooted in interests are all things, uh, born of attention are all things, uh, uh, arising from contact are all things, converging on feeling. So when there is contact, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, then that gives rise to a feeling, feeling of liking, feeling of disliking, or neutral feeling, so that then that... Uh, the uh, we we create the world by turning our attention to a particular object and saying cushion carpet microphone amravati we and it's a, it's a very quick process but <clears throat> then there's a feeling that arises from that turning the attention to a sense object and then reifying it making it solid through giving it our attention and locking into that contact 
So it converges on feeling. So at that point, if there's mindfulness, if there's, um, if there's a, a, an absence of avijja, if there's vijja, then um, that feeling, as the Buddha says, that, you know, all things then they, they converge on feeling. Vedana, sammo, sarana is the Pali. They converge on feeling. They are headed by concentration. So that if the mind is focused, then it says, oh, this is a feeling. Uh, headed by concentration, dominated by mindfulness, surmounted by wisdom. So there's concentration, samadhi, mindfulness, sati, wisdom, banya. So that <clears throat> the mind is, oh, this is a perception. My mind is saying cushion, my mind is saying carpet, or my mind is saying your microphone. This microphone works really well. It's very clear sound. Good. So, okay, there's the, here's the mind making a judgment about the microphone. It's now 3.55. I've got five minutes to cover the last things of this talk that I want to say. And this is a mental event, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, headed by concentration, dominated by mindfulness, surmounted by wisdom. So when things are uh, the experience of a thing is held in that way, then <clears throat> it says, uh, the Buddha then says, that all things yield deliverance as their essence. They merge in the deathless, all things merge in the deathless, and all things terminate in Nibbāna. So then that, headed by concentration, dominated by mindfulness, surmounted by wisdom, yielding deliverance as their essence, merging with the deathless, terminating in Nibbāna. So if every experience is understood in a skillful way, then those feelings will, uh, if they're, they're held within that context of mindfulness, uh, concentration, mindfulness, wisdom, then they yield deliverance. There's a, the heart is not limited by the experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, liking, disliking, a neutral feeling, there's a, a, they merge with the deathless, so that every perception is uh, is born, uh, is uh, is a uh, something that comes into being, it changes, comes to an end, but they merge with the deathless, and you can say that this quality of uh, of unbiased awareness or vijja is the primary activity of that deathless element, the amata dhamma or the amara. The, the the deathless uh, aspect of our own mind, our own being. And terminating in Nibbāna means the result of that um, merging with the deathless uh, is the experience of peacefulness. So every moment is an expression of that peacefulness. So rather than Nibbāna being a kind of a grand event at the end of, uh, of our life, it's actually uh, the... Um, the felt sense of each moment when when every experience of liking, disliking, perceiving, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, is held in its in its uh, true seen in its true light is held in a true context. So this is uh, in a way establishing the the, the more the, the heart is established in vijja in awareness rather than avijja, then the more this is the natural way that every every thought every feeling every sense contact is is held and it is uh, is processed so that the uh, uh, and this in a way is that the third exit point from the cycle is for the cycle not to begin at all because the, the dependent origination it begins with avijja avijja pachaya sankara you know, avijja the, the ignorance conditions formation so that when the mind doesn't see clearly then subject and object are brought into being the the implication being when the mind does see clearly then subject and object 
are not brought into being. That, that there is vijja. So, um, <clears throat> and so in a way, the most fu- fundamental means of breaking the cycle is not to give rise to the cycle. And the more that the, the mind can be established in that quality of, of awakened awareness, of, of knowing, then that whole uh, division, the subject-object uh, duality doesn't arise. The sense world is not uh, imbued with a false solidity. The, 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 the subject is not imbued with a, a, a false sense of independence or, or identity. Uh, and uh, the the whole field of experience is seen in its true light. So this is, uh, say, when the heart is awake, when, we, when vijja is established. So you can call this, this is a different kind of vijcraft. Not witchcraft, but vijcraft. Is the, the, the vijja is the, when that, the more that is established, then the, the, the more there is this, um, uh, in a sense, the heart is attuned to the world, but is uh, transcendent of the world at the at the same time. So I I hope some of these words have been useful to you. We'll have a, a it's just um, coming up to three now, so we'll uh, I'll uh, offer these thoughts for reflection, and we can have a pause now for a cup of tea and um, refreshment, and then gather together again at uh, 20 past if there's any questions and it's time for Dhamma discussion. Anyone?